what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When we take family pictures, I take a picture of him and put it next to our family pictures. Because I don't want him to feel like left behind. Because I always want him to be part of us. Let's see, I have another photo. Woodland sorts through pictures of her son in her Calgary home. They haven't seen each other in 12 years. He lives in the Dominican Republic. This photo was was hard to to see. I remember when he was young, when he was two years old. He, he never wanna sleep in his bed. He always wanna sleep on top of me and my tummy and my stomach. <laughs> and then he feel comfortable. Even I put him in bed. If his wake up is gonna come back to me. Budlen could be weeks away from being reunited with her son. But when exactly, she isn't sure. Widlen and her son are among the thousands of people waiting for immigration, refugees, and Citizenship Canada to process their application. I'm Craig Dessen, and this is Storylines. For months, I've been following Widlen as she and her lawyer navigate a complicated immigration bureaucracy that's processing a record number of applications. It's a frustrating journey filled with lots of waiting on hold, having requests ignored, and even threats of a federal lawsuit. But for Widlen, if she can get her son to Canada, everything she's going through will be worth it. I love this guy so much. So much, so much. Because all my pain... All my sadness, when I have my son, that change, that change, it showed me how to love. Yeah. Woodland grew up in Haiti. Today, the country, in the words of the United Nations, is, quote, on the verge of an abyss because of -of out-of-control gang violence. The Haitian capital has become a gangster's paradise. Gang warfare often erupts here in broad daylight. Armed groups control at least 60% of the capital, Port-au-Prince, and the surrounding areas. Among the major forms of gang violence, kidnappings. About 3,000 people last year were kidnapped in Haiti, according to the United Nations. Most of the victims were not directly involved in gangs. They were directly targeted by armed groups. The violence has... Woodlin was one of those people. That's actually why we're not using her full name. Woodlin says she was targeted. I can't get into why or how she got away, because it may identify her. And she's scared for family members who are still in Haiti. Two years later, she has a son. It's a moment of happiness. It was my joy. It was my joy. I used to cry all the time. But this guy was like, 
make me smile all the time. I even forget I was those things that happened to me, you know, because of him. But it doesn't last. One day, Widlen is walking alone in Port-au-Prince when she sees a familiar face. It's one of the men who kidnapped her. He recognizes her too. I see them and then they run after me. So I was running, running, and then they shoot close to me. When I go back home, I tell my mom I don't want to die. And then I tell my mom I need to leave the country. Boulen doesn't have much money to get out of Haiti, so she gets some from a church to buy a plane ticket to Belize. But she doesn't have enough to bring her son and is unsure about what her journey's future holds. She decides to leave her son with her mom. He is safer there. And Boulen thinks they won't be apart for long. I remember I, I did say goodbye to my son one hour before I leave because I didn't want my son see me go. I just say goodbye to him before, and then I spend time with him, and then I tell my mom to take him, go away with him. I'm just going to go, and then after maybe one year, two years, and then get him. She flies to Belize and then makes her way up to Mexico. And then she goes up to the U.S. But Len has some family there. She settles in San Diego for a couple years, meets her husband, they have a child. But Len thinks they will live there, that she'll be able to bring her son. Her husband is also an asylum seeker. He has Temporary Protected Status, or TPS for short, which allows him to work. Then, in 2017... Protests from the Haitian community as they come to grips with the president's decision to end temporary protected status for tens of thousands of Haitians. President Donald Trump's administration says it will cancel TPS. She worries with Trump in the White House, they'll be deported. So she and her husband decide to flee to Canada via Roxham Road. It's with Len's fifth country in 12 years. But it might be different here. In Canada, if she can get asylum, she has a shot of bringing her son to a new home. So when I came to Canada, I got that hope. I'm going to have my son soon. Instead, Widlen and her son would find themselves in limbo for years. This is where, oh yeah, I was painting here. I said, I'm going to put his bed here. At her home in Calgary, Widlen takes us to a bedroom. She set up for her son. We already have clothes, I put, because I didn't know it was going to take that long. So I was looking it's been seven years since Widlen arrived in Canada, and seven years that she's been waiting for her son to join her here. Yeah, I made videos and then sent it to them too. Sent it to him. I was like, we're ready. <laughs> we're ready for you. Even though they've been apart, they speak almost every day through voice memos. And she has every reason to think her son should be here already. In 2020, Woodland's own asylum case before the Immigration and Refugee Board was successful. I get approved for my refugee. I get approved. With her protected person status, she can apply to bring her son over. So I was like, okay, things are going to go fast. My son's going to come to me. 
Here's with Len's lawyer, Jumen El Asmar. The dependent children of protected persons who have been approved in Canada and who are applying for PR, there is no um, assessment in terms of admissibility in their applications. Their file is approved. It's a given. It's There's no assessment. There's no evaluation. There's no negative uh, decision saying, no, we're not going to reunite with your family members. This it's, it's a program just for family reunification. That's it. That's all. But at the same time, what's really, you know, I should say infuriating about this program is that despite the fact that there is no evaluation or assessment in terms of admissibility, it's still the program that has the longest delays and waiting times. And these are the people who are the most vulnerable. Would Len's son is among the 35,000 dependents abroad of protected persons who are waiting to come to Canada. To get a sense of the scale, this is the sound inside the McMahon Stadium in Calgary, which has a capacity of 35,000. Meanwhile, what Len's new status as a protected person means she can apply to be a permanent resident, which she does within weeks. The wait list is 72,000 people. That's more than the population of Fort McMurray, Alberta. And for many of the people in the queue, there's nothing to do but wait and hope that the situation back home doesn't get worse. Which, of course, for Woodland's son, it did. And this was released through the Haitian Embassy in Canada, telling us that around 1am today, a group of unidentified individuals attacked the president's residence, uh, killed the president and wounded the first lady, his wife, with gunshots. And she's been taken to hospital to get treatment there. It's 2021, and Haitian President Jovenel Moïse is assassinated in his home. The killing shocks Haitians and shows Woodland just how dangerous the country has become. Even the president is not safe in my country. Can you imagine anyone that lived there? They go in the president's house. They kill him in front of his wife. This is the most protected person in every country. Imagine myself, my family, my son. After that, I decide to send my family to Dominican Republic. As the situation in Haiti has deteriorated, the nearby Dominican Republic has received an enormous influx of refugees. And the system is not welcoming. Neither would Len's son nor her mother will have any kind of immigration status there. But she figures it's safer than Haiti, and her son will be allowed to go to school despite not having legal status, which he hasn't been able to do in Haiti because of the country's instability. But the longer her son is in the Dominican Republic, the worse things get. My son was playing with the kids, some of the kids there. And then one of the kids say, Policia, Policia. He was playing, but it's the time that the Dominican police keep deporting uh, Haitian. And then he, he keep running because he was too scared. And then he fall. He broke his arm. <laughs> My son's suffering. My mom was crying. But they're scared to go to the hospital. They're scared to go to the hospital. My son was staying quiet, suffering. I was on the phone. 
I feel so powerless. I don't, I feel so powerless. My son was crying. He said, Mommy, I'm going to die. I tell my mom, whatever it is, you need to go to the hospital with him, whatever it is. A few weeks later, Woodland's lawyer, Juman El-Asmar, tells me his school is raided by the police. His school that he goes to in that area where there's a large population of Haitian residents was raided by the Dominican authorities. They were looking for Haitian children. So um, my client's son just hid under the desk in his classroom and was crying and screaming the entire time. And I'm, I'm not sure how, but he did manage to escape through the window and ran back home, back to his grandmother. And since that day, he has not been back to school. Woodlen and Juman know this is it. They need to get him out of the Dominican Republic fast. The conversation started getting more difficult. Um, she was constantly crying, distressed, um, you know, worried about her son. This is when we decided to send a request to Immigration Canada for urgent processing. Urgent processing is a way of telling immigration, hey, pay attention to this. There's a lot at stake. So Juman sends in the request for urgent processing, along with a sworn affidavit from Widlen outlining what's happening to her son. They either take it into consideration and they do expedite the file, or it just goes into the twilight zone that is immigration Canada system. At first, the request seems to have some impact. It's sent on June 11th, 2023. And on July 18th, they get a letter from immigration saying the son needs to send in his medical exam. It feels like progress, but soon they go back to hearing nothing. She's called Immigration Canada I think once a week, she was on the phone, (laughs) on hold for two hours, trying to speak to an Immigration Canada agent, trying to see what's happening with her file, why isn't it moving, always receiving the same standard response. I've sent multiple web form requests, um, you know, asking about the status of the file and always receiving the standard template response that your file is in process, do not contact us. So this is when I explained to my client, I think it's time now to take this to federal court and to um, request a court order of mandamus from a judge from the federal court because that's, that's the only solution I see now. Meanwhile, in the Dominican Republic, her son is struggling with all the stress. My son don't go to school. 14 years old. He said, I don't go to school. I'm staying home every day. So Juman plays her last card. She sends Immigration, Refugee, and Citizenship Canada a final notice. Essentially, she's telling them to fix this now, or she's going to ask a judge to do it. They didn't respond. We need to take a quick break. Storylines, we'll be right back. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Up until this point, the only way would Len could have visited her son would be to travel on a refugee passport, which her lawyer says isn't advisable. He did not, you cannot come see me because he don't know how complicated the thing is. He, don't, he doesn't know. It's hard. I contacted Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, asking them why the case is taking so long. They send me a release form. If Woodland signs it, it allows IRCC to disclose details of her case to me. She does, and a few weeks later, a communications person from the government writes to me to say the Federal Immigration Department are awaiting a Quebec selection certificate to process her application. The Quebec selection certificate is a document giving you permission to settle in the province. So even though Woodland lives in Calgary now, she needs one because she lived in Quebec when she first settled here. Now the federal government is awaiting a copy. Uh-oh, I think as I read the email, if her case is stuck between two levels of government, that can't be good. So I call up Juman and ask her what is going on with this certificate. We send the Quebec selection certificate three times already, and every time they ask for it again. So where is it going? Who's in charge of these files? So there's definitely a problem internally uh, in terms of, you know, um, administration, bureaucracy, call it competence, you know, but this is causing delays in our clients' files and in real and causing really negative consequences in real people's lives and, and, you know, a continued and extended separation from their minor children. We have provided everything. It's definitely mind boggling to say the least. I fire off an email to the immigration comms department saying what Len's lawyer says they've sent it multiple times. They write back to tell me Widlen's application for permanent residence was approved. And quote, she is set to be virtually landed once a permanent residence portal account is created. Could this be the good news Widlen and her son have been waiting for? Juman tells me no. Widlen will have to wait longer. Generally, that should take another two to three months because even once you uh, open your application on the portal, it does take them about six to eight weeks to issue the confirmation of PR. So she's supposed to receive the confirmation of permanent residency and afterwards the PR card by mail. Um, And once she gets those, that's at the same time they should be issuing the PR visa for her son. So Woodland's wait continues. It's kind of like so bad because he was talking to me yesterday, was crying because... I promised him I'm going to see him by December. I was like, if you're not with me, I'm going to come see you. And then yesterday I told him, I still don't have the paper to come see you. I asked Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada about the bigger picture behind the delays in Woodland's case. They told me in an email, As the number of refugees worldwide continues to grow, so too does the demand for Canada's resettlement programs. Processing times for refugee applications depend on a number of additional factors, some of which are beyond immigration, refugees, and citizenship Canada's control. Woodlen and her son are far from the only people facing this problem. I spoke to three immigration lawyers about the long wait times for permanent residency and family reunification. Here's Justin Toe. I'm a Canadian immigration, refugee, and citizenship lawyer based out of Toronto, Ontario. 
So tell me a bit about your understanding of this issue of um, protected persons having to wait so long to bring family over to Canada. It's a major issue. The service standard for granting permanent residence to a protected person is 24 months. But the service standard for granting permanent residence to their family members abroad is 48 months, a full two years extra. And there really isn't, in my opinion, a justification for this level of delay. Once the permanent uh, residence is granted to the protected person, there only really needs to be a little bit of medical and criminal history screening. And that takes maybe one or two months. Now, because these family members are separated so long from their parents and their spouses in Canada, oftentimes they can be targeted by the agents of persecution abroad and this places them in danger. So when you say danger, like what kind of danger do you mean? It depends on the case, but oftentimes uh, you see that even after a person flees to Canada, the people who were trying to hurt them will attempt to intimidate their family members, perhaps even torture them to get information about their target's whereabouts. Or oftentimes these family members were implicated in whatever reasons led the person to fled in the first place, but were not as successful in fleeing the country. So, for example, I've had clients who had children that were targeted by family members for female genital mutilation. And although they were able to get out of the country, the child still remains there. So at any time, if the uh, problematic family member gets their hands on the child, then the child will be subject to that kind of violent and uh, potentially fatal behavior. And you might ask, why not get the kid a visitor visa and just keep them in Canada? It breaks the rules, but you get the kid out of a dangerous situation. Justin told me this isn't possible either with how visitor visas work. A condition of such a visa is that the child must prove to the government that they are going to go back to their country of origin after a short stay. And if they're being pursued by an agent of persecution, for obvious reasons, that's not something that they can viably promise to the Canadian government. I asked with Len's lawyer, Juman El-Asmar, why it takes so long to process a single application for permanent residency. She tells me there's a cap on the number of permanent resident applications that the Immigration Department will process each year. If within that year they have already reached that cap, whether it's in other programs for permanent residency or if it's through protected persons, then the rest of these applications will roll over to next year's processing. And the cap for protected persons PR is, is actually not, not that high. It fluctuates every year based on immigration targets, but it's definitely not enough to, um, to have these people processed all within that year. So that's why we end up having clients who are waiting three, four years. It's usually difficult to go behind the scenes of huge government bureaucracies with thousands of employees like Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada But last fall, the Auditor General of Canada audited our immigration department's processing of permanent resident applications. So we have a window into what is happening. There are macro reasons for the delays. For starters, the annual targets for permanent resident applications just keeps growing. Then there was COVID. According to the Auditor General, in 2020, the immigration department had to close its processing centers in Canada and across the globe. 
By 2021, essentially a year into the pandemic, the department said 800,000 applications had accumulated. The backlog has been brought down, but it still exists. Here's Carol McKella. She's an auditor at the Office of the Auditor General who worked on the report. They, in principle, follow the first in, first out uh, principle where applications are processed in the order in which they are received. But we found that um, IRCC, in fact, in 2022, placed a preference, um, uh, a priority on newer applicants over older applicants. And so most of the applications that were decided were from newer applicants. Um, And as a result, backlogged applicants stay in the queue longer and, and become more backlogged. A part of the issue for refugees and dependents is their processing time depends on the work of embassies around the world. And many are understaffed. We examined the government-assisted refugee programs and privately sponsored refugees. And these had the longest wait times of all programs that we examined. Um, the, in 2022, the average processing time was, was close to 30 months uh, for these programs. Justin Toe says the issue is a lack of resources in departments where staff are needed most. So, for example, there's an office in Tanzania and there's an office in Rome. Both of these offices get about the same amount of resources, but the workload in Tanzania is five times higher. And this really affects people with family in sub-Saharan Africa most severely because it's those offices that tend to see this big gap between resourcing and demand. So when... You're in your, your office and someone tells you that their child is in this this situation. Like what what do you what do you tell them? Like what do you do? Unfortunately, there's not really a whole lot that can be done without some kind of comprehensive policy reform. This winter, Woodland finally received her permanent resident card, but she still doesn't know when her son will arrive. In early February, her lawyer requested information about her son's application. They haven't heard anything back. Woodland's wait continues. I want people to know that, especially the government, you are a country that gives you that protection that your country cannot give you. And then that promise you that promise you, you're going to be united with your family and then not doing it. How are you going to feel? That's all for Storylines this week. Today's episode was produced by me, Craig Dessen. A version of this documentary originally aired on CBC's The House. It was story edited by Jennifer Chevalier and AC Rowe, who is also the producer of Storylines. This show is part of the CBC Audio Doc Unit. I'm Craig Dessen. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.